good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. On today's program, we're going to have some fun this cold Christmas morning, revisiting some of my favorite pieces and listening to some holiday tunes. I'm going to bring back a feature I did on local music photographer Paul Natkin. He's taken pictures of virtually every touring musician who's come through Chicago over the past 40 years. Later, we'll hear all about Chicago-based artist Scent Rock, whose first solo exhibit is still available to see for a few weeks. And I'll revisit a piece I did on a cocktail that's become a tradition for many Midwesterners, plus some other fun things along the way. Thanks for making time for some arts and culture this morning. Every December, I highlight a number of holiday traditions. One of my favorite local ones involves a particular cocktail that has a devoted fan base. For thousands of Chicago area residents, it just isn't the holiday season until they've had the Tom and Jerry. Every Christmas season, we probably sell four to 5,000, which is quite a bit for one drink. Yeah. <laughs> That's Eris Galios, the owner of Miller's Pub. His restaurant is the place to go in Chicago to get the warm brandy and rum cocktail that's known as the Tom and Jerry. I visited Miller's Pub a few years back, pre-pandemic, to get the inside story of how this eggnog-like concoction became so popular. Even if you've never eaten or drank there, chances are you've probably walked by Miller's Pub at 134 South Wabash. It's hard to miss its neon red sign. Once inside, there's a large dining room and a warmly lit bar that feels a little bit nostalgic in a good way. There's also tons of pictures on the walls, most of incredibly famous entertainers and athletes who have spent time at Miller's. We are located right next to the Palmer House, and uh, they have, uh, back in the day, even today, it was a very popular uh, venue called the Empire Room, and a lot, of, a lot of singing acts, comedy acts were headliners there. We were always open late, half a block away, till 4 a.m., so a lot of times after the show, they, they take their um, posse or their... Uh, Entourage, and they go hang out at Miller's Pub, and just it was it seemed to be a, a, an after-show destination for them. And then a lot of the a lot of the patrons would follow them over, you know. The, and then that's how that started. And then throughout the years, uh, then a lot of sports people came by: Cubs, Sox uh, players, out-of-town players, uh, Yankees players. It was just um, it just kind of started out that route also. The Galios family has owned and operated Miller's Pub since 1950. The establishment was run by the Millers before that, originally opening in 1935. There's no clear history of the Tom and Jerry cocktail, though it's believed to have been created in the 1820s by a British journalist. 
Though not as popular today as it was in its heyday, the Tom and Jerry is still served in different parts of the country around this time of year. It's definitely most popular in the Midwest, especially Wisconsin. You can find a hot toddy in almost any bar in Chicago, but Miller's Pub has cultivated a cult-like holiday following for being the place to go to get a Tom and Jerry. So, how did this tradition start? Why did this become the, well, the you know, spot? It's, it's, my father passed away in 1992, and uh, I don't remember ever really s- discussing it, how it started. But it was just it was, it was, a, it was a popular drink in, a, in the 40s when they opened the bar in 1950. It was, a, it was a feature there, and it just carried on throughout the years. And I guess it just turned out to be a very, very popular drink for the holiday season. We, do, we, we, we started uh, the day after Thanksgiving. We were running through the New Year, and um, it's, a, it's a hot drink. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's tasty. I think we're the only one. I don't know anybody that does it. And, and I don't think, and if they do do it, they don't do it we, the way we do it, how we, we, do, we do it from scratch. And I've seen some versions, like instant versions. But the, we've uh, tried to stay stay true to the the old recipe. For the uninitiated that don't know what it is, can you describe it? It's a hot drink we serve in a, in, a, in, a, in a mug. Pretty much, it's a take on eggnog. We, we use dark rum, brandy. We use the powdered sugar, egg whites, vanilla, cinnamon, and nutmeg. And um, we, we mix it with hot water. And that's pretty much it. It, it's a hit. I mean, that's all I, that's all I could say. I mean, honest to God's truth, people call in, in August asking, when are we going to start? When is Miller's Pub going to start the, the Tom and Jerry's? I, honest to God's truth. And now we used, to, we used to stop at New Year's Day, and now we kind of carry it through sometimes to the middle of January, figuring the weather's, you know, it still has a chill in the air and, and it's, it's a warm drink. So we, we carry it through sometimes, you know, depending on the, uh, on the response. They keep a large container of it with a ladle behind the bar. He told me they probably made over 600 Tom and Jerry's this past Saturday. Any advice for people listening to this? It's pretty busy here around this time of oh, year. Yeah, if they yeah. want to try one, uh, we encourage you to try one. Um, the bar is bar is first come first serve, but I would suggest you make reservations. And sometimes we we cut off reservations because we we were so busy this time of year. But the bar is first come first serve for Tom and Jerry, so you're welcome. You get a lot of people going to the auditorium this time of year. Auditorium, all the Christmas shows, orchestra orchestra hall has their Christmas uh, programs. But every every uh, theater venue has their Christmas programs going on now between choirs and and all that, so that explains a lot of the heavy traffic this time of year. That's Eris Galios. He's the owner of Miller's Pub. It's hard to describe what exactly it tastes like. It's like a cloud of spiced creaminess with warm alcohol underneath. You can taste the warm spiced sweetness of a Tom and Jerry for yourself at Miller's Pub. That's at 134 South Wabash. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Thanks for spending some of your Christmas morning with me. It's always interesting to hear how artists and creatives end up on their chosen paths. For artist Joseph Perez, AKA Scent Rock, his trajectory seemingly changed when an artist visited his West Phoenix grade school over 25 years ago. That encounter sparked a creative flame that's opened up numerous avenues, including his first ever solo museum show, which is on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum through January 15th. You know, I feel like this show was more for like the families that don't go to the museums that much. Because I think about like my family, you know, the first time they went to a gallery for one of my shows or the first time we go to, you know, visit a museum, 
sometimes they feel like that space isn't for them or they feel like they don't get it. And I feel like with this show, I've literally created a story for people to get. The exhibit, Scent Rock, The Boy Who Wanted to Fly, focuses on the artist's alter ego. A young boy who wears a bright red bird's mask and goes by the name Bird City Saint. Museum visitors will be able to follow Bird City Saint's story through a series of mixed media pieces that include mural, paintings, sculptures, and video projection. I caught up with Scent Rock at the West Suburban Art Museum to talk about the exhibit and the evolution of his work. His interest in art was sparked by an interest who visited his first grade class. My first introduction to art was school. A mirrorless came to my school, you know, a visitor. Basically, this mirrorless came, did about a two-week mural project with us, and I was like in first grade. And from there, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, let me get more crayons and more coloring pencils and just keep making art. You know, like the old quote Picasso says, everyone's an artist when they're a kid. It's remaining artists as they grow up. So I think just as a kid, I fell in love with it. As he got older, his creative interests evolved. I think more as I got older and got more into, like, you know, my own when it came to, like, Graffiti art and street art is really where I found I found the love for it on my own. And you grew up in in Phoenix. Is there a big street art graffiti scene there? Yeah, I, I was born and raised in West Phoenix. There's a lot of graffiti at that time growing up. You know, in the 90s, gangbang culture. You know, gangbang culture was very prominent. Uh, all my family comes from that culture, and where we grew up is predominantly Mexican, American, hood, you know, you look at West Phoenix, where I'm from, you see what the culture is. So we saw, I saw a lot of graffiti, a lot of like um, gang graffiti, and then every now and then you'll get, you know, the like Chicano style murals of like field workers and, and Southwest and stuff like that. So that's kind of the environment that I was reflective of. Where does Scent Rock come from? Scent Rock comes from, it's funny because I'm 36 now, and that's been with me since I basically was about 15 years old. I used to have a different name. I forget what it was, but I used to have a different name, and I got in trouble with that at school, you know, whatever, <laughs> suspended, this and that. And me and my friends were like, oh, you need a new nickname. And my friend was like, you should go, you should go by Scent. That'll be your new, like, taggy name, S-C-N-T. I was like, oh, that is kind of cool. I like it. And he's like, yeah, you should do Scent, like Heaven Scent, because um, you're getting into like church and you're getting into your spirituality. At that time, I was like, that's cool. Like I was going to youth groups and stuff. I was like, cool, I like it. And then rock came, me and my friends started learning how to break dance and everybody, you know, in that world has like a, yeah. has a nickname, whatever, something rock or, you know, so I just, it's just been something that's been with me ever since then. And I don't know, it's like, I guess it just works. A lot, everybody, most people call me just Scent now, so. Fast forward a little bit, Scent Rock made the move from Phoenix to Chicago about 12 years ago. You come to Chicago in your early yeah, 20s. Yeah. What brought you here? Long story short, I needed something new. I needed a change of environment. Like I said, I was born and raised in Phoenix. All my family was there, and it, it wasn't too diverse. So I fell in love with Chicago's diversity, the cultural diversity, all the different, you know, walks of life when it came to like art and the creative culture so i signed up at columbia college and did about a year there and wound up dropping out just because i started working with local galleries and i just figured you know what school's been fun these two semesters but i'm here you know i found what i wanted to do and work with galleries and make art yeah so were you like when you get to chicago and you whether you're in school or not were you just were you 
making stuff on the side and trying to get it into places? Yeah, when I first moved to Chicago and I was in school, doing my thing in school, which was great because of all the resources, and it gives you time to really like set your perspective of what you want to do. But really what I would do is I would do my art. You know, I did a lot more street art style stuff like stickers, weed paste, um, abandoned building, murals, stuff like that. And I remember printing out all my, my work and, you know, just walking around to different galleries, showing them. And, you know, at that time it was like, all right, that's cool. But we don't, you know, that's, that's a very old traditional style of like, here's my portfolio. Yeah. Now you just kind of like send your, your, your CV and your artist statement with like, you know, five samples of, you know, in your website. But then it's like, that's all I knew. I'm just like, yo, let me print out my art and show them. So that, yeah, when I first got here, that's all I did. Kind of like, just try to find my own lane. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking to Chicago-based artist Scent Rock. His solo exhibition, The Boy Who Wanted to Fly, is on display for another couple weeks at the Elmhurst Art Museum. Virtually every piece in the show revolves around Scent Rock's alter ego, Bird City Saint. We're sitting in one of the gallery spaces surrounded by your pieces. And so this is uh, what you're known for, Bird City Saint? Yeah, this is the Bird City Saint, my signature character that I developed over time. It's almost like my alter ego. And a lot of the work, a lot of the storyline is very like reflective of my, my upbringing. It's kind of autobiographical in a sense. So, but I really wanted to make it, everybody could put themselves in the shoes or you know, put themselves in the bird mask, I guess. Yeah, it's a character I developed over the last probably, you know, 10 years, really, just developing this idea and getting it to this point. Is that a cardinal mask? Yes and no. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily define it just because I don't think it's super important. But at the end of the day, it basically is because the meaning of how I developed it is like, all right, I grew up in, I grew up in Phoenix. The football team is the Cardinals. All right, I come, I come out here, Chicago, the state bird is the Cardinal. So I'm like, oh, that's an easy move. Like, it, it speaks to both of my kind of, you know, demographic. And then I think, too, the color red is so, is so demanding of your attention. Like, when you see a stop sign or a red light or an ambulance, there's always that red, you know, that, that color red. Because I think it... it demand your attention and that's what I wanted to do with my street art or my murals or my art I really like all right how can I grab the viewer's eye how can I grab someone's eye and make them notice my art the title of this exhibit is the boy who wanted to fly this character is your alter ego yeah so the you know the idea of the boy who wanted to fly is you know if, it, if we're reflecting off of my childhood it's like all right growing up in the hood growing up with your family you know maybe for me like my parents didn't graduate high school visiting you know family members in prison stuff like that and you just think like all right at, at a young age seeing a lot of negativity you want to escape you want to fly you want to be free you want to feel that liberty like you don't want to feel like bound down so i think that's why it's like all right this boy wants to fly here's the visual narrative of this story of this character it's almost like the origin story of it and for me as a kid i always wanted to like all right i know there's more for me out there than just growing up in the hood and, and following the same footsteps as people around me. So that's why I really put the work of, there's this kid, I really wanted to be reflective of this kid that 
is looking for something more or looking for an escape. And then if you see throughout the work, there's this red bird that, that visits the, the young boy, you know, visits him. And that's the visitor that kind of inspires him to, to fly or teaches him how to fly. That's the climax of the story. There's a boy wanting to fly, meets the visitor, and then that visitor, which is the little bird, you see in the story, but gives him a spray can, and that boy lives out his dreams or lives out his creativity through his art. As far as the, the bird city saying, why do you think people respond to it so well? To be honest, that's a good question. I'm still asking myself why so many people like this character or resonate with it. But I think ultimately, like me talking to you, I'm very open or I'm very genuine about my story or genuine about the message I'm trying to convey. And I think that is portrayed through my art that, you know, people relate to it because they can feel it too. Like, oh, maybe they're feeling a way like I would like to be able to fly away. There's moments they want to feel that sense of freedom or whatever it is. I try to be as genuine as possible so people can relate to it. So I think just the idea of people being able to resonate with that, I suppose. Before this exhibit, you were already, your career is great. You're getting commissioned to do big projects in Chicago and other cities. But having like a solo show in a museum, was that something on your list? Like, I want this? It was definitely on my list. It was 100%, this is 100% a lifetime dream of not just showing in a museum, but having my own solo exhibition, you know, and, and sharing the story how I want to share it. It's definitely been a dream. Because I've been doing my, you know, my street art, my public works and, and murals all over. And I've been LA, you know, I've been everywhere. In, in the States, but I think when you get the platform and you work with a museum that believes in you, because when it comes to the museums, it's not just some, it's not like a gallery that, hey, let's work together, you'll sell some, I'll make money, you make money. With a gallery, there's so much more at stake. They have investors, they have board, they have members, they have, you know, they have the history of being an establishment like this. So when they believe in you, it's almost like, you know, we, we don't need the credibility, but it's almost that credibility of like, wow, like, okay, like somebody sees something bigger than, you know, what I just see maybe. Yeah. And, you know, it's definitely a beautiful feeling. That was Chicago-based artist Joseph Perez, also known as Scent Rock. His solo exhibit, The Boy Who Wanted to Fly, is on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum through January 15th. So if you've got some time off during the next week in between holidays, definitely worth checking out. And if you've never been, the museum is located right in downtown Elmhurst, close to the train station. While you're there, you can also check out the Mies van der Rohe McCormick House. You can find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. You're tuned into the arts section. Happy Christmas. I'm Gary Zydek. It's pretty chilly out there. I hope you're staying warm. Wanted to make sure I made some time to play one of my all-time favorite holiday tunes that doesn't quite get the recognition I think it deserves, in part because it was unreleased for a long time. Marvin Gaye's Purple Snowflakes is pop soul holiday perfection in my eyes. It was supposedly recorded in the mid-60s, but wasn't released officially until the release of the compilation album A Motown Christmas Volume 2 in 1992. So it kind of got lost along the way. I don't know how much attention that compilation album got. Though it is starting to get more attention in recent years because of a cover by the singer-songwriter Leon Bridges. But for my money, 
you can't beat the original. Here's Marvin Gaye singing Purple Snowflakes. Softly they flow, where do they go? Purple snowflakes cover the ground without a sound. Gentle snowflakes fall from the sky before your eyes. It's so thrilling. Blankets of white brighten the night. Such a feeling. They seem to say that our love is here to stay. We'll be cozy and warm until summer flowers bloom. Here in our nest, we're surely blessed. Chestnuts roasting over the heat. Gee, ain't life sweet. Tootsie's toasting, drifting on air without a care. Purple snowflakes cover the ground without a sound. Loving snowflakes as sure as snowflakes fall from the blue. I will always remember this night. Here with you It's no good is that marvin gay purple snowflakes uh, if you're looking for it you got to find a motown christmas volume 2 which came out in 1992 though you can find the, the single on most streaming platforms as well quick reminder if you listen to the art section on wdcb every sunday thank you but also make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. You can find all sorts of additional content there. You can also find past episodes and individual features to listen to anytime you want and find pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartssection.org. And if you ever want to reach out with a comment or question, you can send me an email at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at OnAirGary. One of my favorite features from this past year was on a local music photographer who put out a book of his work this past summer. Let's revisit that story. (laughs) ¶¶ 
One of the world's greatest collections of popular music photographs resides on the north side of Chicago. Not in a museum or gallery, but in the home of celebrated local photographer Paul Natkin. A row of file cabinets contains thousands of photos Natkin has captured over a 40-plus year career as a music photographer. Of course, Natkin's home studio isn't open to the public, but a sampling of his best work is now available in a beautiful new coffee table book titled Natkin, The Moment of Truth. The 288-page book contains a curated selection of some of Natkin's most iconic pictures. The Rolling Stones, Prince, Mavis Staples, Dolly Parton, David Bowie, Miles Davis. These are just some of the musicians Natkin has photographed over the decades. Chances are you've probably already seen some of Natkin's work. His photos have graced countless magazine covers and are continually used in a variety of other projects. The only thing Natkin has more of than photos is stories. Fantastic tales collected over the past four decades that involve going to concerts almost every night, jumping on tour buses with bands at a moment's notice, or traveling the country with the Rolling Stones as their tour photographer. I tried to touch on as many as possible during my interview with Natkin this past summer. I visited the Chicago native at his home studio for a wide-ranging conversation about the life of a music photographer. So I thought we'd start at the very beginning, and it's a pretty interesting story of how you came to photography. We can attribute that in part to your dad? The story behind the story is my father was a photographer during World War II, and he got out of the Army, came back to Chicago, became a freelance photographer, did a lot of really cool stuff. I was born in 1951, and at that point he quit photography and got into the building business because my mother didn't like the fact that he was traveling all the time as a photographer. Mm -hmm. So the whole time I was growing up, I just knew him as a builder that had this room in the basement with sinks and chemicals and stuff that he never used. 1971, he kind of, not officially, but he kind of went bankrupt in the building business, wasn't making any money, so he decided, okay, if he's not going to make any money, he might as well not make money being a photographer than not make money being a builder. And one of the people he knew was at that point the publicist for this basketball team that nobody cared about in the city of Chicago called the Chicago Bulls. That you could walk up to the box office five minutes before a playoff game started and buy like a fifth row seat. So he called his friend Ben and Ben said, yeah, we can't afford to pay you anything, but if you want to come to the games and shoot pictures, if you get something good, we'll buy it from you. So at that point, I was 20 years old, living at home, with my parents having no idea whatsoever what to do with my life. He went to the game, he came home that night, 11 o'clock at night, and he told me this story that included four parts. Part number one, free parking. Part number two, get into the game for free. Part number three, free hot meal in the press box. And part number four, best seats in the house. Because you're sitting right on the, at the side of the court yeah. to take pictures. and. The first thing I said to him was, okay, I need to become a photographer. What's fascinating is that Natkin had never shown an interest in taking pictures before. I had never held a camera in my hand in my life, ever. So he took me to the next game, and he had a spare camera. And he, right before the game, he showed me how to use it. He showed me what button to push and how to advance the film and all that stuff. And he set the camera the way it should be set, and I took a bunch of pictures. Came home, he taught me how to develop them. And they came out pretty good. So I decided, okay, this is, this is it for me. Get to go to everything for free. 
What could be better than that? Never once thinking that I'm going to make a living doing this. Right. How do you make a living having fun? You know, not many people could do that. So uh, I did that for about four years. He got tired of it and he quit, but I still had a card in my wallet that got me the free parking and, and the games for free. So I kept on going and I met all these other photographers, Chicago photographers, and they all said, well, you know, you're pretty good at this. Do you want to come and shoot a baseball game, a football game? Uh, so all of a sudden I'm on the sidelines standing next to Walter Payton at Soldier Field. Yeah. And I'm going and taking pictures of tennis matches. And it was after photographing a local tennis match when everything changed. I was shooting a tennis tournament up in Evanston. And it was over like at 7 o'clock at night. I went back to my car and my car was parked next to a building, a big giant building called Khan Auditorium, which is a theater. And I got in the car, put my stuff in the trunk, got in the car, started the engine, the radio was on. And there was a commercial on the radio for a concert that was taking place 10 feet away from where I was sitting, inside Cotton Auditorium, in a half an hour. I can't make that, there's no way I can make that up. I mean, there's no way that that could possibly have happened, but there's also no way that I can make that up. Right. And it was this woman that I kind of heard of. I was always a music fan, so I knew music. And I'd heard of her, her name was Bonnie Raitt. And she was kind of just starting out. She was playing in Con Auditorium. So I figured I've been able to BS my way into almost any sporting event I wanted to go to. Let's see if I could do the same thing with a concert. So I shut off the engine, got out, got the stuff out of the trunk, went to the backstage door, and I made up a huge lie. Made up this lie that I'm shooting for this new magazine that nobody's ever heard of yet called Rolling Stone. And I opened the door and I got ready to give the lie to the whoever was on the other side of the door. And I walk in the door and there's a guy sitting behind the desk and he looks at me and he sees the cameras and says, oh, you're with the press. Go ahead and do what, go inside and do whatever you want. Just don't get on stage. Didn't even have a chance to use my lie, which was really good. That was one of my better lies. So that's how I got started in the music industry. I gave up sports immediately. Yeah. Not interested anymore whatsoever. Because sports is pretty repetitious. At this point, Natkin had found his new passion, but he still hadn't figured out how to make a living with these photos. Taking these pictures, I have no idea how to make money. So one day, this new venue called Park West opened up. And shortly after, and that was a jam venue, they were booking the shows. So I used to go there all the time. And one day I was there shooting a show, and I walked out in the lobby like halfway through the show, and this friend of mine, who's a lawyer from Detroit, was standing in the lobby with this guy. And she introduced me to the guy, and he was the art director slash photo editor of a magazine called Cream Magazine. To me, Cream was the greatest rock and roll magazine ever printed. Still, let's still say that today. Here's the portal to the, the possibilities. Right. So I immediately said to the guy, like, how do I get my pictures in your magazine? And he says, well, it's pretty easy. Well, I'll give you my number. Call me the 15th of the month, and we'll give you a list of everybody we're doing articles about. And if you have any pictures of them, send them to our office in Detroit, Birmingham, Michigan, actually. And uh, if we use them, we'll pay you, and then we'll send them back to you. So the 15th of the next month, I called him. He gave me a list. I had one band on the list, this guy named Rick Derringer. And I sent him some pictures, and two weeks later, I find out I've got a full-page color picture in Cream Magazine, which I made the astounding total of $35. So I figured, okay, I made 35 bucks, but I'm not going to be able to eat off of 35 bucks. So I got to figure out a way to sell more pictures. So I went to 7-Eleven, and I bought one each of every magazine on the newsstand. 
I piled them up in my living room and I started with the top of the pile and I looked up who the art director was and I called him and made a deal the same way I made with this guy from Cream. Call me on a certain day, I'll tell you who we're doing articles about, if you have the picture, send them to us. And all of a sudden, a couple years later, I'm selling six or seven pictures every month to every one of these magazines. And they were it was everything from... It was Cream Circus, Hit Parader. I got in contact with a German magazine called Bravo that published like hair metal pictures like crazy okay. from that era because the Scorpions were really big. They were from Germany. Mm-hmm. I got in touch with a magazine or actually an agent in Japan and I would send them duplicate slides and I'd get checks every month for like a half a million yen, which comes out to be about $150. <laughs> But I was, my pictures were being used all over the place. And I was making sort of living, relatively okay living, to where I could afford rent and food and film. And, you know, I'd figured it out. I'd figured out a way to, like, earn a living. Nat can continue taking pictures. The opportunities gradually increased. But things really started to take off in the summer of 1984. And then there was a fateful month and a half of June and July of 1984, where I had sort of established myself. I knew a lot of publicists in New York, record company publicists. I shot a lot of really big shows. I got a call in the beginning of June 1984 from a Warner Brothers publicist, and she said, would you be interested in flying up to Minneapolis and shooting Prince's birthday party? And it was the week the Purple Rain came out. It was a private show. It was at the club that the movie was filmed in, First Avenue. Invitation only. And he was going to perform for an hour and a half. My first thought was, I'm going to have to go up there and fight a hundred other photographers. It's going to be like a rugby scrum. Then I figured, well, it's only a hundred dollars round trip to fly to Minneapolis. So flight, in those days, there's a flight every hour. You get a room at the Red Roof Inn by the airport in Minneapolis for like $29.95 a night. I could probably make that money back. A lot of film and processing and all that, but, you know, it's a relatively small expenditure to take a chance on. And I got up there and found out, walked up to the door, found out that I was the only photographer allowed in the venue. I have no idea why. To this day, I never asked. I don't want to make waves. I just accepted it. And I stood right in front of the stage, and I shot pictures like that. You know, he was four feet away from me for an hour and a half. And I got home the next morning, got the film processed, sent it out to a bunch of magazines, including one magazine being Rolling Stone, who I'd done some work for in the past. They called me up the next day and they said, listen, we love your Prince pictures. We're gonna use a bunch of them. There was a woman up here and she saw your Prince pictures and she's the publicist for Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce is starting his tour later on this week. This is like now like the second week in June starting his tour once again in Minneapolis, actually St. Paul. So I called his publicist, this woman that had seen my pictures, and she liked them. And she said, well, why don't you come up to Minneapolis and shoot the opening of Springsteen's tour? I said, no problem. It's only $100 for a ticket and hotel rooms cheap. And I went up there the day before he started the tour and she brought me into the empty venue. Get up in the evening 
And he was shooting the first video he ever did, which is for the song Dancing in the Dark, which included Courtney Cox dancing on stage with him. And I had six hours of just, I was the only, there was a video crew, there was me and the E Street Band. And I just shot whatever I wanted to shoot. And then the next three nights, I shot the first three nights of the tour. I got home, processed all the film, sent it all out to magazines, everybody started using it. And I called Bruce's publicist and said, listen, I got really great stuff, but I want to get more. And he's coming to Alpine Valley next week. This is like now the beginning of July. Mm -hmm. um, he's doing two shows at Alpine Valley. I want to shoot those too. And she said, well, why not? No problem. So I drove up each night and drove home afterwards and I shot two more shows. Then the first week in July, I get a call from Rolling Stone and they say, we love your Prince pictures. We love your Springsteen pictures. We want to hire you to shoot the opening of the Jackson's Victory Tour in Kansas City, two nights at Arrowhead Stadium. Okay. So this is all one month. It's like June 7th to July 7th, and all this stuff is happening. I got like 24 hours to get ready for each of these. I said, no problem. And uh, went down there, shot two nights there, came back, sent them the pictures, you know, and I figured, okay, I've made it. This is the ultimate. <laughs> and it really did change everything because what it did was people saw my pictures in all these magazines, covers of Cream Magazine, uh, covers of Rock and Roll magazines all over Europe. And I started getting total access to all their acts. Like, hey, we got somebody coming to town. They're playing at the you know Auditorium Theater. Do you want to shoot? I didn't even have to call them. They were calling me. So the following year, Bruce went from being big to being colossal. And Newsweek decided they want to do a big article about him. The publicist called them and said, hey, there's this guy in Chicago that has some really good pictures of him. You should give him a call. And I'd worked with Newsweek a couple times, but nothing really big. It's just like made a couple hundred dollars doing an assignment for him. I sent him a bunch of pictures. And two weeks later, one of my pictures of Springsteen was on the cover of Newsweek. And that is still to this day, the biggest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. As a photojournalist, it's the biggest thing that could possibly happen. Newsweek or Time, you know, they're both pretty equal, or were. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with renowned music photographer Paul Natkin. He's got a new book of his photos out right now. Back in the 80s, things were going great for Natkin. He had connections with every major publication, and more importantly, he was developing relationships with musicians. Another big opportunity presented itself after Natkin sent some photos to Keith Richards' management team. So the day before Thanksgiving, this is 1988, day before Thanksgiving, my phone rings. Pick up the phone, it's Keith's manager. And she says, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I was gonna go to my parents' house for Thanksgiving. <laughs> And she said, nope, you're coming on tour with us. And she said, pack your stuff. You're going to be gone for probably a month. Get on a plane tomorrow morning, fly to Atlanta, take a cab over to the Ritz-Carlton, call me when you get here. That night I was shooting a Keith Richards show in Atlanta. And then getting on a tour bus with him and his band. And I did it from coast to coast for about a month. It ended right around Christmas, 
middle of December, and I came back to my regular mundane life. Uh, you lived like a rock star for a month. For a month. And I'm thinking, once again, I'm thinking, okay, I can't top that. So when I got home, there was a month's worth of mail sitting in the front hallway of my house. And so the first thing I did is I saw the latest issue of Rolling Stone on the top of the pile. So I opened it up, sat down on the couch and started reading it. And in the random notes section, there was a little article that the Stones, Mick and Keith, had kind of made up because they were mad at each other. And they were going to go out on tour in 1989. So I waited a couple months. I sent the note to Keith's manager. Hey, I heard you guys are going out on the road. If you need a photographer, give me a call. Threw it in the mailbox. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever expect that to actually materialize into anything. So the tour starts, no phone calls. So I figured, okay, it was a good try. I got, I got to go out on the road with Keith for a month. And about three weeks into the tour, I get a call from Keith's manager. And she says, so what are you doing tomorrow? This time I knew. And I said, well, I guess I'm coming to meet you. Where are you? <laughs> And she says, pack your stuff, get on a plane, fly to Boston, come to the Ritz-Carlton, call me when you get here, and plan on being on the road for a month. So I fly to Boston, go to the Ritz-Carlton, call a room. She gives me a room number and says, go and put all your luggage in this room. And all of a sudden, the Rolling Stones start coming out of the elevator. And we get in a van and we go out to Foxborough Stadium, where the Patriots mm-hmm. used to play. They might still play there, for all I know. I and... Uh, and I'm shooting my first Rolling Stones shoot. And then the show ends, and the entourage gets in a series of six vans that are parked behind the stage. And we get a police escort out, out of the venue to Logan Airport. And we get on a private jet. I don't even know where we're going. All I know is I'm sitting on a private jet with the Rolling Stones. We end up in Birmingham, Alabama. So one day I went from Chicago to Boston to Birmingham, Alabama, flew on a private jet with the Rolling Stones, shot a show, and I'm on tour with the greatest rock band in the world. Pretty exciting lifestyle that you could just get a call the night before Thanksgiving and oh, yeah. then be on the road for a month. It's a little nerve-wracking, but it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's kind of cool. The heavy metal bands, the hair metal bands, a couple times I've gone to shows and a band, band member will say, well, listen, you got about an hour before the show, go home drive your car back home, pack some clothes, and take a cab back here and just jump on the bus with us. And we're going to Detroit tonight and hang out with us for two or three days. And I'll find myself like three days later in Cleveland. <laughs> like, okay, you can go home now. And then I have to figure out how to get home. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I've got on a tour bus with an hour notice. Chicago-based Trope Publishing released Natkin, The Moment of Truth, earlier this month. Obviously, you've got this gigantic catalog of photos. Why put out a book now? Well, everybody kept on telling me I should do a book. And somebody introduced me to the publisher, and he said, yeah, let's do a book. And I said, okay, I'm not shooting that much anymore. There's not going to be a whole lot to add to this later on, so let's do it. You know, the rest is history. I'm sitting in your living room and you've got these great photos. I would imagine the photos you choose to put in your own living room. It's kind of like your own little hall of fame of your favorites. Well, they're my favorite photos. They're also, every one of these photos is in the book. Yeah, and including the one on the snowboard in the corner, which is Ozzy Osbourne holding Randy Rhodes up in the air, which is the most famous picture I ever took. So I was going to ask, obviously this room is uh, your own little mini hall of fame, but having to choose the photos that would make it into the book, was that hard? Oh, you don't even want to know. It all happened during the pandemic. 
right before the pandemic, the publisher came over here and we, uh, we just started going through my archives and we started alphabetically. Okay. And there's 4,300 names, 4,300 folders. And we started with ABBA and we just started scrolling down the list. And, and he walked away, it took four afternoons to go through the whole list. Mm -hmm. And uh, he walked away with like 400 photos. And then the pandemic hit and we had to do everything online on Zoom calls. And he laid everything out and then we'd go page by page and we'd fight over, I don't like that picture, put a different one in, or I want that one over there, I want that one over there. And we slowly, over I think it was 17 different layouts, we slowly refined the book into where it should be. Then I wrote all the little introductions I got some people that I know, my friend Dave Hoekstra, who used to write for the Sun-Times, wrote the foreword to the book. I got this great essay in the back, I don't know if you saw it, in the back of the book, the by Steve Gorman from the Black Crows. But I also have a second essay that he wrote where he talked about the first time he met me. The Black Crows met me, uh -huh. did you see that? Yep. And I was with Keith Van Horn from the Chicago Bears. Yeah. Who, uh, who I was just on the phone with right before you got oh, here. Yeah. You said it was like twins, because he's so big. Yeah, well, you know, at one point when twins came out, yeah. Keith and I were walking around Greenwich Village in New York, and uh, people were just looking at us and laughing because he's six foot seven and I'm five foot two. You know, I just, I just started filling in. There were certain pictures that needed to be explained. How do you put a picture of Motorhead sitting in McDonald's without explaining why they were there? or Joan Jett fronting a heavy metal band, a hair metal band. Mm -hmm. So I, I had to write like little paragraphs to explain certain pictures in the book. And then uh, and it all came together. Well, let's start with the cover. Why did you choose that or how did that get chosen for the cover? Uh, Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. It's always, it's always the hardest thing in any book project is to figure out what's gonna be on the cover. But uh, we narrowed it down to a bunch of possibilities and we mocked up the cover, put them all up on the wall. I looked at them and that one just jumped out. I mean, it's, a, it's one of my more spectacular photographs. I mean, I, that was taken at Live Aid in Philadelphia after like 70 bands in one day. They were the last band of the day. Okay. And I don't even remember taking the picture, but I must have been on autopilot because it came out pretty good. That was going to be my next question. If, like when you look through your photos, do you, can you remember, is a lot of it a blur? No, I remember pretty much everything, almost yeah. everything. It's got to really be a long event. Live Aid in Philadelphia started at 11 in the morning. 70 bands in one day. And it, every band had like two or three songs. And I shot all 70 bands. It was everybody from Madonna to Ario Speedwagon. To, I mean, you name it. Yeah. Ozzy Osbourne. They were all there. And uh, at the end of the day, there was no breaks. So there was, there was one time where I actually like, I had to get up and go backstage because I had to go to the bathroom. And that's the only break that I had the whole day. No food, no breaks. And at the end of the day, I, like, I was hallucinating. I couldn't even, I, I didn't even remember holding a camera at that point, but it was, uh, it was quite, uh, quite an interesting day. So one of my favorite artists is David Bowie. What was it like shooting him? Well, David was right at the beginning of the whole you could only shoot three songs era. He's such a great showman. It was a shame to leave after three songs. The publicist was there that night, and he was a friend of mine. And he, uh, he says, well, you know, I know you want to shoot the whole show. So after three songs, I'm going to come in the photo pit and 
escort everybody out of there. So just get in the back of the crowd of photographers. And when we get out of the photo pit, just kind of fade into the audience for a couple songs. And after all the other photographers leave, just go back in the photo pit. So, so I went back in there and the picture that's in the book, he's holding up a skull with a rose in its teeth. And he saw me in the photo pit and he wasn't used to seeing photographers there during that part of the show. Uh -huh. I was the only one there, little old me standing in front of him. <laughs> so he posed for me. So the book is broken down also by by genre. So you have a whole jazz section, and you get a great shot of Miles Davis, and you write a little bit that he was infamous for kind of turning his back to the audience. So you had to wait to get that perfect shot. I won't leave until I get the shot. It's, it's, it's either stubbornness or stupidity or perseverance. I don't know which one it is. And he walked out on stage, and he took off his coat and hung it from the drum hardware. And then he played the entire show with his back to the audience. And it was at Park West, and the floor in front of the stage is made out of hard hardwood oak flooring, and it was like kneeling on rocks. And he played for three hours. And I just waited for him to turn around. I'm not leaving until you turn around, dude. And he, uh, he finished the show, crowd's going crazy, and he walked over and he picked up his coat and he put it over his arm, and he turned around and he waved to the audience and I took one picture. That's one of the, my favorite pictures that I ever took. I couldn't walk for two days afterwards, but it was great. Did you get to meet all, the, all these artists that you photographed, or sometimes were you just there to take pictures? Well, I'm always just there to take pictures, but sometimes if I'm doing a photo shoot with them, I get to meet them. If I'm not, I really don't have a lot of interest in meeting them. If I meet them, great. I've, I've met a lot of artists through touring with the Rolling Stones. Like Eric Clapton used to just pop up, just show up at yeah. shows. And he would always come backstage and play pool before the show. There was always a pool table back there. So I used to go back there and play pool with him just because he was there. Yeah. Uh, there was one night where I used to play with Keith a lot, play pool. Okay. And we're playing, and there was these two guys standing there. They challenged us to a game. <laughs> okay. This was in Los Angeles. And we started playing pool, and it was me and Keith Richards against Eric Clapton and David Bowie. <laughs> and I had to keep on asking myself, like, Is this real? Am I, am I really here, or is this a hallucination? But we also we had a party one night after one of the shows in Los Angeles, and I was sitting in the corner with a couple of people from the tour, and these two people came over and asked if they could sit with us, and it was Bruce and Patty Springsteen. And they sat and had dinner with us. And I, I've had plenty of opportunities to meet Springsteen, but I had no interest because what am I going to say to Bruce Springsteen? If I, go, if I go backstage after a show and there's 50 people waiting to meet him, and one at a time they walk up to him, what are they all going to say? They're all going to say, Dude, that was such a great show. So what am I going to say that's different than that? Like, oh, yeah, you weren't so great tonight. Maybe you should have played whatever. So I've had offers. People have said, you know, you want to come back and say hi to Bruce. Never had any opportunity or never had any interest until I met him, like, on equal footing. While meeting these legends of music wasn't high on Natkin's priority list, there was an artist he did want to have his picture taken with. So I'm, a, I'm very into blues. And because I'm from Chicago, and you got to be into blues. 
And uh, there's a record label in Chicago named Alligator Records. And they're, they're the biggest blues label in the world, which as the owner of the company says, um, that makes him the tallest midget in the world. <laughs> and, you know, they're, he's a great guy. They're a great label. And I shoot a lot of album covers for him. And he calls me up one day and he says, I'm going to bring Mavis Staples over to your house to shoot an album cover. And I've always been, I'm a soul fan and a blues fan. And Mavis is like probably the greatest soul voice that's ever lived. I had no idea what I was in for, but I set up a black background. He brings her over and he says, I want pictures of her singing. For three hours, she just sang to me in my living room. I had a private concert in my living room with Mavis Staples. Yeah. And at the end, it's the only time I've ever, the camera was on a tripod. It was all set up and the exposure was set and all that. And I said to Bruce from Alligator, I says, okay, I'm gonna go and stand with Mavis, just hit this button and take a picture. And I had my picture taken with her. And I've never, I've had, I had a picture taken with Keith Richards once. And that's the only times I've ever had my pictures taken. So thinking about like how when you first got into this, it sounded like it was cool to get access to these concerts and you were taking pictures, but then just even throughout your career, are you able to like enjoy the, the show and listen to the music? That's a, that's a really good question. It's hard to answer that one. When I shoot the whole show, I don't shoot every minute of the show. I, I wait for, there's a photography term for it. It's called the decisive moment. And I wait for things to happen. Like you can only take so many pictures. Let's say, for example, I'm shooting Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I take pictures of everybody in the band, individual shots of everybody. And then I wait for moments where they get together. Like if Mike Campbell comes up next to Tom, I want to be ready to get a picture of the two of them together. When I'm waiting for something to happen, I'm watching the show, if I like the music. If, if it's like some thrash metal band, I'm enduring the show. But I'm still standing there for the entire show because you never know what's going to happen. Some of the things you were telling me about early in your career and just getting access, it reminded me of the, the movie Almost Famous. Have you seen that film? And is that... Oh, yeah. It's a story of my life. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, it was, it's a different story, but it's, it's the same thing. It's like if you, if you hang around enough, Things are going to happen. That's acclaimed photographer Paul Nadkin. His photo book, Nadkin, The Moment of Truth, is available almost everywhere books are sold. You can find more info about the book at trope.com, and you can check out Paul's website at natkin.net. You heard Paul talking about his experience photographing Bruce Springsteen. So with that in mind, let's listen to the boss doing his version of Merry Christmas Baby live.
Springsteen and the E Street Band right there. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. 
But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. It'll be 2023. Can you believe it? Until then, I hope you have a, a great week. I hope you have a Merry Christmas if that's what you celebrate. If not, I hope you have a, a great holiday week. Thanks so much for listening. Of Thankful friends who were dear to us will be near to us once more. Someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. Until then.